Welcome to the ACID Science Podcast, the official podcast of the Association for Critical and Interdisciplinary Thinking. We are a global nonprofit organization dedicated to spreading education around artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and social change. In this podcast, we are hoping to provide insightful discussions with young professionals and world-leading researchers alike. I'm your host, Manuel Prenner, and now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. So I'm here with Travis Green. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Travis is a PhD student in business analytics at the Institute of Service Science in Taipei, Taiwan. So Travis, you're a second year PhD student and you're looking at issues surrounding like data privacy, data ethics, and like the overall field of data science. You have a pretty diverse background. You originally did a lot of philosophy and you got a um, master, an MBA, Master of Business Administration, and are now like also studying data science and the implications around it. Um, I think the topic is really crucial for us modern people that are really living in an age defined by data science and by machine learning back personalization. It's really changing our modern age and through services like Facebook, Netflix, YouTube, Amazon, Google, our identities are slowly moving on the internet and the way big data is handled by these large companies Our, big, our personal behavioral data is, is handled is going to really shape not only our behavior, but in the realities we perceive. So I think it's really crucial to, to discuss what perspectives, philosophy, and like thinking about these topics deeply, not from an, only from a technological perspective, but from a like more humanistic, holistic one can bring to that practice. So I'm really excited to have you here. Oh, and I think there you. are several really interesting several really interesting roads we can head down um so maybe before we get into like the get talking about ideas maybe you can give a short introduction what what brought you to um to the to the position you're currently in like what what fascinates you about it or why you think it's it's such an interesting topic yeah sure so thank you for the nice introduction i Yeah, I kind of have a weird background, kind of, maybe I'm not so good at focusing on, on one thing for a long time, but I tend to jump around. I've been, I, I studied philosophy for undergrad and a master's degree. And when I was doing the master's degree, I wasn't sure, like, maybe I want to do a PhD in philosophy or something. And uh, the, the master's degree was kind of testing the waters to see if this, if that would be a good decision. And uh, the master's degree definitely let me know that I did not want to do a PhD in philosophy. So in that respect, all the money that I borrowed to pay for that was, was, was good. It was a good investment in that it stopped me from probably making a terrible decision. So um, I don't regret, I don't regret the, the education and the, the experience, but You know, my my question has always been like the problem with studying philosophy is that you kind of like know everything and nothing at the same time because you're you're a generalist you you're exposed to like I was doing philosophy of mind and so you learn a little bit about neuroscience about neural networks about all kinds of random factoids but you don't really know how to build anything you don't know how to how to do anything that's practical. So it's really tough to find a job, actually. You have to really 
market yourself and kind of, yeah. So that's why I recommend, first of all, if anyone studies philosophy, definitely do a minor or do, do a dual degree or something where you have some kind of practical skill. And I think that's where philosophy really has a synergistic effect. It's just studying it on its own, of course, is nice. And I wish everyone could do that. But if people can combine practical stuff with some philosophy, I think that that's really nice. And it gives people, like you said, data scientists or engineers who maybe haven't been exposed to some of the ideas. It really helps them to see things from a different perspective, to ask deep questions, to um, you know, not accept the, the methods that everyone else uses and, and to, to just question fundamental things. That, that's just basic way of doing philosophy. Um, yeah, at some point after philosophy, I kind of realized that I should gain some kind of practical skill. And that's when I kind of got into programming and data science. And I think, yeah, I was working at the time and, and trying to teach myself. And it was just, it was really difficult because my background is not in mathematics. And I think a lot of the marketing and the, the hype around data science makes you think, you know, you, if you go anywhere on Google or you'll, these courses, you'll see things like, oh, 30 day boot camp or something, you know, it makes you think like you can just pick this stuff up. Like you could just learn to write Python code that that's good in, you know, like six months or something like that. And the reality is, at least in my experience, unless you have a background in engineering, mathematics, some kind of natural science, it's going to take you much, much longer. If you want any kind of deep understanding of what you're doing, of what what's happening under the hood when you're running code, you, you really probably need at least at least a four-year bachelor's degree worth of time to, to get the, the fundamentals. Um, so for that reason, that's when I went back to school and then started to take courses and, and, and get hands-on experience with projects and companies and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, in data science, there's big gap between what's going on underneath, like the deep mathematical structures that really make this stuff work that we to some degree don't even understand to this day why why gradient descent works so well and backprop and like what the properties of these high dimensional spaces actually are but at the same time yeah i guess maybe from your philosophical background you have this ambition to to really know what's going on under the hood and not have that black box just download a package in python and then just just put it on the data i think there's in yeah, there's this weird image around data science that it's kind of easy to do and that you don't need a degree with Google also releasing these courses and saying, yeah, if you do this six-month course, it's yeah. going to be worth as much as a master degree. I'm a bit critical of that because, um, yeah, like statistical thinking and just really scientific thinking is something you don't quickly learn and you can produce a lot of just bad science and bad analysis if you just like without thinking, apply an algorithm blindly on, on a data set? Yeah, for me, like it was a weird experience because the more I learned, the better I became at, at programming, the deeper I went into, I mean, I'm, I'm not like a data scientist, but um, you know, I've been doing this stuff for on and off for two or three years. And the more I did it, the more I realized, like the less I knew, you know, the less there's just like so much because so many different fields have contributed to to data science and like, you know, I'm just taking a course now in computer science and um, it's, it's really nice to see sort of the history of AI 
and all the different paradigms and compare that with today when everyone just assumes AI is synonymous with machine learning. And mm. I think having that background, just the big picture of this is just one paradigm and a historical succession of different ones. It could have been a different way, but for whatever reason, you know, a combination of technology, data collection, all these things sort of came together at the right time to push the, you know, neural network stuff at the forefront. But it doesn't mean there aren't different paradigms. Like, for example, I've noticed that uh, fuzzy logic, um, there, there's a group, I think it's in Switzerland that, or in Spain or some, something that's kind of doing interesting work with combining fuzzy logic with neural networks. And, you know, the, the nice thing about that is uh, with fuzzy logic, you get these like, forget what they're called, like um, word variables or something like that, where you sort of have linguistic terms and it, it, it makes the, the output of the neural network or at least explaining the output much more communicable for humans because you can attach, you know, you say it was high, it was medium, it was low. So, I mean, I think these kinds of interesting connections are, are pretty cool, but most engineers don't even, they're not exposed to it because it's not like the cool thing. You know, it's not sexy. Yeah, there's a, a couple of roles we can now take. Um, you, maybe just to go in that direction first, you mentioned like the synergistic effects of philosophy and kind of having this wider perspective on data science. Um, there's also like a big ethical component to be, being a data science. You wrote in one of your articles um, that data scientists or I think scientists in general should consider them themselves to be moral agents that are actually consciously and unconscious or unconsciously making certain decisions. And recently Netflix released this movie called The Social Dilemma. I think some of you might, might have already seen that. And I found that very illustrative because it was the, the, it was a documentary about the, the influence big tech companies are having over our lives now and they're really the problems associated with social networks and the whole movie was composed of interviews from people that worked as um, um, engineers um, programmers um, like managers in in these big tech companies and they looked back on the influence their work had five years ten years later and kind of realized that they had that they ended up pretty regretful of what they had done and they hadn't really been aware of the implications of the technology and of the developments they ushered in. So you introduced this concept of the activist data scientists. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think I, I took, a, I sat in on a course a couple of years ago when I started my MBA and it was AI and law. And it kind of got me down the, the path of GDPR. So I ended up spending a lot, a lot of time reading and writing about the GDPR. But there was one, I think he was a professor or assistant professor, or maybe he was a PhD or a postdoc at the time. But this one student, we would go back and forth arguments about, you know, uh, the regulation of AI in law. And his point of view always struck me as like kind of absurd because he seemed to believe that he had no responsibilities, that he was essentially a pro problem solving machine that was like kind of like a like an atom. And to me, it, it was like crazy that people would think that that way that they didn't have that their 
the work they were doing had no effects on society on and and that they owed nothing to the people who educated them or the society in which they were um, given their engineering education the the opportunities they had the languages they speak all these these things that would be impossible without societal support they seem to think that they owe nothing to that society and and to me that just seemed crazy because we're in we're in a kind of network with a certain historical social tradition and i think we have some some duty to repay back what we've taken you know either education or job opportunity or whatever it is that we have um you know i'm i'm lucky enough to have been born in the us and so i had a relatively good educational environment but when i moved to thailand for example i saw people who were way smarter than i was um way way better students than i was and yet they weren't really able to achieve their potential because the environments the educational environments and things like that just weren't the same so i think that seeing that kind of stuff makes me realize that that i have if if there's anything i can contribute it's at least to get people to think about how they're connected in ways maybe they they didn't realize just to like get that idea across for data scientists that they are really have this moral obligation or maybe like an obligation to society to to try to do good to would you say that's like your your ambition also behind your work a little bit yeah i i think recently i've been thinking a lot about how we can change recommenders actually sort of how we collect data that are used in recommender systems and sort of interpreting the data that recommender systems use and and you know a lot of the recommender systems rely on implicit data collection so it's sort of like clicks and and swipes and likes and things like that and what i'm interested in is like what what does that say about the person it doesn't say anything and how much of that can you separate from the structure of the data collection platform and um yeah it seems it seems to me that there's there's a lot of interesting philosophical questions that you could ask around recommender systems and um i don't think many people are asking questions about what things mean or um you know they they're just collecting behavioral data without much thought about um you know whether someone intended to do something or whether it it sort of how how fine grained the data are and when you're breaking down complex behaviors into these tiny micro behaviors that you sort of lost any kind of in, intentionality behind the the behavior so you know if recommender systems are claiming that they're trying to infer our preferences or interests it it seems strange because you can't really have um such fine grained interests or preferences and um yeah these these kinds of questions are are things i'm trying to think about and connect it back with sort of the law and the the ideas behind the gdpr and um to me it's it's fascinating the difference the philosophical difference between european and american approaches to technology i don't know if you want to talk about that but um, um yeah definitely i yeah. we can we can also talk about the the european court ruling but maybe because we are just already in the in the 
area of recommender systems, maybe to, to take a step back and explain why recommender systems, it might seem like a pretty specific term, but why they are so absolutely crucial and why they already to this day are pretty much shaping the behavior of almost every person in the Western, or like maybe on the entire planet to a degree. Yeah, recommender systems, it, it started out Uh, the interesting thing about recommender systems is if you look at the the early work, like I don't know, in the late 1990s or something like that, there there the idea was that explicit data collection was. I mean, this is like in the era of um, expert systems and stuff. So that the whole approach there, as I understand it, is it's like you're trying to formalize expert knowledge, right? And um, so they want to ask users, what do you like? What do you you know? What's your role in this? in this system and then they adapt accordingly but they're they're asking people explicitly these questions and then as the you know as technology got faster and smaller we got smartphones in our pockets data collection became easier and easier um, somehow over time the the paradigm switched from explicit to implicit data collection and They stopped asking people, why are you doing this? What do you need? What do you want? And it became just collect as much behavioral data as possible and then aggregate over however many thousands, millions of people. And you can find some some pretty decent predictive signal in there. And, um, and uh, yeah, so The, the interesting thing with recommender systems is that the paradigm is completely sort of flipped and like uh, Zub, uh, what's her name, Shoshana Zuboff's book, um, Surveillance Capitalism, kind of gives a historical overview of the shift from the explicit to implicit data collection. And in, in my personal opinion, she is a little bit alarmist, but I think her, her book's actually very important. and. I recommend anyone who's interested in this this history of how recommender systems and data collection have changed the way the internet works, the incentive structures and stuff to go check out Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism. So I, I guess one of the issues with recommender systems is that at a certain point, they even know more about a person than the, the person even consciously knows. I mean, there have, have been these examples of Amazon detecting that women are pregnant. They they kind of um, determine certain interests you have, and then you they have this big data. They have Google has your search history, YouTube has your what you watched for the last couple of years, and they can really use this information to to maybe implicitly infer what's good for you. And these companies kind of claim to, to to realize based on this information you give them that they can judge what's good for you. But the whole question of what is good for a person is um, that's a question where philosophy has to come in to, to really think about and determine how these recommender systems should actually operate to to determine what's good for a person. So can you explain a little bit maybe what what the problem here is and what, what different kind of goods recommender systems could achieve for a person yeah that's a that's a good point i think the way that we look about uh, look at that issue is you know they like to use the word 
uh, when I say they, I say researchers and uh, companies like Google that are making these recommender systems product uh, products that are sort of built in now to a lot of the Google tools. It's like connected with Google Analytics and stuff. So it makes it really, really easy to apply this stuff to a lot of people. And the, the thing is, the people using it or, you know, um, electing to use these these systems may not really understand how they're working. But to me, the, the difference is between sort of what they call interests and what I would call reflective interests. And, you know, if, if I even grant them that it's true that they're inferring interests and preferences and things like that, um, whatever those interests are, these are our, our basis interests. They're, they're interests that, you know, we've sort of evolved uh, to have things like, you know, responding to certain kinds of visual stimuli and social cues, environmental cues, things like that, things that you don't consciously, like you said, think about. And I would like to see at least the, the industry move towards, and, and there's some people also um, arguing for this, that we should go back to the explicit data collection and we should go back towards this, this focus on asking people, what are you doing? What do you want? Not just trying to sit, you know, claiming that we're inferring these things that you want, but really you're inferring these these first order desires and not like what um, Harry Frankfurt would call second order desires. And I think that's if if I could change the recommender systems way of thinking, it would be focusing more on these second order desires. Like when you do certain things, you know, maybe some something would pop up and say, like, did you intend to do this or, <clears throat> you know, um, it, it could. Uh, I've seen some things where they use, especially reinforcement learning, I think is dangerous because, you know, these systems are, are adapting online to, to behaviors uh, instantaneously in some cases. And <clears throat> um, it's really easy to, to, to set in some kind of objective function and, and, and just max, maximize or minimize it or whatever. And <clears throat> there's, there's no real control about um, how, how we're getting there, you know, what steps on the way towards, towards the, um, the optimization. And yeah, I mean, the, the, with reinforcement learning, the, the most famous caricature of, of uh, an unclearly defined objective function going wrong is a paperclip maximizer that essentially you have a very smart AI that, that you tell, please, um, uh, create paper clips and then at some point that AI realizes that it can by destroying the world and enslaving mankind maximize the amount of paper clips you it, it gets out of and so having these I mean it's it's a pretty extreme example but at some point we can realize that the AIs we already implement if we give them bad um, optimization functions they can, that can lead to pretty bad outcomes so, I mean, for example, the, this whole idea of um, the interests of the customer are not really optimized for their own interests, but um, usually optimized to, to maximize screen time and then to maximize ad revenue derived from, from that screen time. And then you have this um, opti, like the, this function that you're optimizing is screen time. And then basically the AI is agnostic to any like implications of well-being for the person that is using the system but it's it's just saying ah, i have this kind of trick to 
this kind of content is going to pull that person in if i show certain conspiracy theorists if i show like fundamentalist terror organizations like show propaganda videos from them it's going to pull the person in and then really the recommender system is agnostic as to to what it's doing just if it's trying to to obtain its goal and i think that's kind of where the where the problem really lies that reinforcement learning is just yeah, the algorithm is it might be intelligent to a certain degree but it does cannot reflect on what it's recommending and what it's doing and that's really like the place where we need to be really careful and and as creators of these systems really think about what is actually good good for the users from like a more profound perspective but yeah i mean the and this goes back to what what you were saying about differences between american and european perspectives on technology and and the american it, it seems to me the american point of view is you kind of just build stuff and you let it you let it do its thing and um if it becomes really bad i mean the american legal system is is kind of built this way where it's like you know, and until something bad happens, then then you um, do something about it, and you can um, sue someone or something like that. They're not trying to proactively stop. You know, they don't want to place bets on which technologies are going to work and which ones won't work. And this this was one of the criticisms of the GDPR, is that, uh, that, that at least Americans, some some legal people saw the GDPR as sort of the the, the EU placing bets on which kinds of technologies. And some people were saying that, the, you know, the very act of, of big data analysis and sort of purpose specification, if the GDPR says that you need to specify which purpose you have for, for, for processing personal data. And they're saying this, this, these are incompatible. You can't have both. You can't um, extract in, interesting insights from you know, different data sets uh, but then also specify the purpose beforehand. You know, a lot of the stuff only happens serendipitously. And so, yeah, there's definitely some skepticism. I don't know how it is in, in Europe, what the overall feeling is about GDPR. W what's your take on that? Can you, can, can you give a like short definition of what GDPR is? Um, I don't think that's really as general knowledge Oh, GDPR. Yeah, so the the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, I think it came. It started. It was drafted in 2016, and it came into effect in 2018. And it basically extends an earlier directive for, for all the the EU member states, and it's it gives data subjects, people like you and and I certain rights about consent to processing of our personal data, certain rights to maybe download, modify, edit, delete, you know, the, the famous right to be forgotten. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of, when I look at GDPR, it's, it's like the European union drawing a, a line in the sand and saying, look, here's, Here's where we stand on the role of technology in society, and we're not afraid to say how we feel about it. Whereas, like in America, the government does not want to take a stand on which technology they, they want to at least pretend 
that technology is neutral and you just let it work itself out. And then if, if there's a problem, you fix it, um, but you don't do it before. Mm -hmm. Seems like similar to the whole economic approach of libertarianism and so the idea of self-regulation of companies yes. being good enough usually and the, the government having the least possible influence on, on what's happening. I think, yeah, in, in Europe, it's it's definitely a different approach. And I think we are also more deeply rooted in these ideas of human rights and really the rights of the individual and the rights of privacy and data protection. And the, in Germany, it's diverted as mentioned, so the dignity of, of human beings at the really at the heart of, of our constitution. And I guess, yeah, well, we have a different approach. Also, I have to say, I, I, I mean, maybe in the courts it's different, but like, I don't really see on the streets and in the in the bars and like in, in everyday life conversations, we also don't really seem to be too concerned about our privacy and our data, maybe in some circles, but like, yeah, I don't know. You also talked about the this court ruling by the European court about privacy shields. Um, to be honest, I only heard about that from your article. So maybe you can also talk a, a bit about okay. what this court ruling was and like how it how it connects to it, what we we're just talking about about america versus european approaches to privacy and data yeah that's a that's a good point the um yeah you reminded me that i was giving a talk for this recommender systems ethics conference not that long ago and one of the facilitators asked me a question about the gdpr and he, he said you know, how many people, how many EU citizens actually know about the GDPR and, and use these rights that you're, you know, I'm trying to tell people, uh, given certain interpretation of GDPR, here's how we should design recommender systems. Here's how we should design data collection platforms and things like that. And he, he's saying, well, how many people even know about the, the rights and so on? And it, I think my response was something like, um, maybe not at the time, but afterwards, Like even in America, if there's only a 40% turnout to, to vote, does that mean that we should take away rights to vote? I mean, it seems to me there's a descriptive and a, a normative claim here. And even if only 1% of people actually went out to vote, I don't think we would want to take away the right to vote. So even, even if it's the case that very few people in Europe care or know about these, these rights, I don't think that's a reason to to um, downplay the GDPR or or um, suggest that it's not useful or important or something like that. So, um, yeah, I think part of the problem, like you said, is communication, getting people to know which rights they have so that they can actually exercise them so that, you know, the ideals of the GDPR can can be realized. You know, like you said, human rights are kind of the foundation, dignity foundation. And um, if people don't know about the rights, then, you know, then how is it protecting their dignity? But anyway, to go back to your question about the privacy shield, basically, like you said, the, the American approach was, is totally based on self-regulation. And I think that was one of the major reasons that I think it was safe harbor before. They've gone through some, at least two iterations now since at least around 2000. And Each time, there, I think the first one failed after Snowden, after he leaked that the, I think the NSA was 
that was wiretapping Merkel or something like that. And, you know, Europeans were very angry about that. And so they said you know, they had a list of <laughs> adequate countries. It's, um, I think the European Commission came up with a list of like 12 countries in the world that meet the, the EU standards for data privacy and protection. And the U.S., of course, not on that list. Um, but I think Israel was on there, Canada and, and some things. But um, so they're like, yeah, we don't trust the U.S. anymore. So they backed out of this agreement. It fell apart. And then they sort of went back to the drawing board, came up with new sort of protections to make sure this time around that these these same problems wouldn't crop up again. But the problem was that it was all based in, in self-policing and self-regulation. So, for example, the companies self-certified that they were meeting all the standards. So it was, already you could see that it was probably going to be problematic because at the end of the day, there's no one, there's no real enforcement. I think that FCC was in charge of some of the enforcement and under Trump and people who just want to let the, the industry do its thing. They're not going to be looking for people violating these things. And I think at some point um, after a series of, of cases in the, the European courts, they, they decided, uh, yeah, even with this safe harbor or privacy shield, it still wasn't meeting the standards for, for adequate protection of, of Europeans' personal data. Well, the hearings from, um, of Mark Zuckerberg um, in, in front of the Senate also related to, to these issues? Kind of, was it tied in with, with the whole privacy shield and the, the kind of calling out the companies for a lack of self-regulation or was it more differently um, motivated? I'm not sure anymore. I don't know. I think if I remember correctly, I think that was the Cambridge Analytica scandal that, you know, yeah. there was some feeling, I mean, I haven't been back in America for a while, but I think there was some feeling that there might be some federal. See, the problem in the U.S. is that you have sectoral and in industry data protection guidelines. So like, for example, health records or financial records or stuff like that, uh, medical records, they, they have to, they're, they're they're federally mandated rules about how you deal with those things. But in terms of like personal data, like the GDPR, so like any data that can be linked back to an identifiable individual, there's nothing like that at the federal level. So that's why we have in California, the Consumer Privacy Act. Um, I think some other states may have recently enacted stuff. But um, after Cambridge Analytica, it seemed like there might be action in Congress to enact something similar to the GDPR. But of course, it, it fell through. And as far as I know, there's there, there's not really any movement right now to do something like that. And I guess if, if individual states take care of it, then there's even less incentive to do a federal approach. Yeah, what, what do you think the, the future in, in Europe is going to be after Privacy Shield? Do you think like the European courts will get more, like, pass more severe laws and really try to, to force the, the American companies to, to play by, by the European rules and by European standards? Or there be, like, penalties or something? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. It, it seems to me like there's a kind of almost unbridgeable gulf in philosophies between the, the regulate, regulatory style of the, the U.S. and Europe and it, it 
in my opinion, it goes back to, like you said, basic ideas about human rights and what, and I think maybe the, the major difference as I see it is that the European Union has a kind of normative vision about what a person, person's life should be like, what are the, the basic minimal standards for, for a flourishing life. And so they're willing to curtail technology so that, you know, people can, uh, can meet these standards. And in the U.S., uh, we don't want to, you know, the traditional liberal approach is that you let individuals decide their own good and um, you just make sure that they don't kill each other and let them work things out individually. Yeah. And everyone benefits, apparently. Yeah. Doesn't always look like it, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, maybe like a different point that you that you also talked about a bit in your articles the, the whole idea of how online rights would even look like and how we as, as users would even like manage to shape kind of a narrative of our private data in the web. Can you linger a bit on that point? Or maybe to discuss what, uh, like what kind of thoughts you have in, in this direction? Yeah, so I've noticed that narrative is kind of a master concept in the humanities. And it's one of the, if you look in recommender systems literature, you'll, you'll almost, I don't think I've ever seen the word narrative. And to me, that's like the main thing that makes human experience different from, you know, a particle or something like that. It's this idea of narrative that there's a story, that there's some degree of coherence to the story, and that psychologically speaking, humans want to maintain some level of, of, equilibrium in the story they don't want to they don't want um, events to be so unexplainable within their own lives that it causes them to to experience psychological distress and to me is it's kind of mirrored in the way that data is collected about us because we as users of these platforms and especially if you're not in a, in the area covered by the gdpr you have no idea about what kind of data are collected about you you have no idea which which of these data are used to make the recommendations. Maybe if you're an informed person, maybe if you know some data science or something, you, you have a rough idea of what's happening under the hood. But if you're like my mom or someone, then you have no idea. And my, my thought is that we're, there's sort of everything that we do is being interpreted through the language of the database or the data collection platform and there's no chance for the user to sort of shape this narrative so you know what did it mean for me to click on this button or you know maybe the system recorded as a click but for me it was playing my favorite song or something like that and this discrepancy between the experience from the user side and the the same event seen from the data collection side is this gap between the two is is what I call narrative accuracy or um, inaccuracy, the bigger the gap is. And I, I'm wondering if there's a way somehow with, with the help of the GDPR, with these legal tools that people have to modify, edit, delete, and so on, to, to sort of shape the narrative of the, the digital exhaust, the behavioral exhaust that they leave in the wake of their, their interactions with, with these systems. Like if there is some way to... <clears throat> see which data are collected about you, use that data to then sort of understand how, so there's kind of a, 
the Galian aspect in that you, you sort of realize your own identity through the reaction of someone else's um, reaction to you. So it's, it's, it's this idea that you can grow as an individual by seeing how others perceive you and then reacting accordingly. And I wonder if there's a way to, to incorporate this kind of idea into data collection and recommender systems. Yeah, that's very interesting to, to have that dialectical movement between, because we are always as individuals in, in, in interactions with these systems and they learn about us and we learn about them and maybe like they can help us learn about ourselves. Yeah, to to go back to the this this point of shaping a narrative online, um, maybe an, another idea is that recommender systems can like you can tell the recommender systems what to recommend to you based on like a certain incentive to to incentivize your personal growth, for example, or you you tell the recommender system a certain narrative that you well, you tell the the recommender system I want to get good at data science or I want to good get good at speaking French and then please recommend certain things to me that really kind of drive my behavior towards the goals I want to achieve abstractly. Maybe to also to to get the distinction between yeah what we want to achieve um like in the longer run and in the short term. Um, Daniel Kahneman also distinguishes between these two Two, two types of, of pleasure, like that, that kind of idea of having experiencing pleasure in the moment and this, this concept of being in retrospect happy about your life is something completely different. So as an example, getting children and just not being able to sleep for a year and like having all that stress and the economic struggles and all of that seems from moment to moment when you're really tired it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to get children but in retrospect and from a different perspective it's the most meaningful thing you can you can find in your life probably so i guess that's also where that difference between yeah, narrative giving meaning to us because like meaningful narratives are really what what defines us as human beings and having that moment to moment pleasure and the recommender systems right now really seem to to focus on this moment to moment more hedonistic kind of like engagement and, and pleasure. Yeah, I think the way the way they're designed with those principles of behavior modification, the whole point is to avoid any kind of conscious. You can actually, uh, you can go to, there's a company called Optimizely, and they do a lot of the A-B testing for websites and apps and stuff. And if you read their, their website, they're, they're not, they tell you directly, they say, the whole point is to avoid cognitive overload. So the more choices that you ask users to make, the uh, more likely it is they're not going to, to you know, convert. They're not going to make it through the, the conversion funnel to the end. So the whole point of designing your website and using recommender systems is to avoid letting people reach this state of you know, self-awareness. What am I doing? Why, why did I click on this? You know, do I really want this product? Do I need this product? The whole point is to avoid letting people ever get to that stage. And I think that's, that's kind of sad and, and dangerous, but if you look at the incentive structure of, you know, capitalist systems, then it's not surprising, but um, I think data scientists, if they have any role, if you have any, any kind of role in industry, I would hope that people would not want to participate in building these kinds of systems, or at least 
ask questions about why are we doing it this way or, or try to get the users involved. And I think that's a major issue is that, like I said, this power asymmetry between the, the data collection platforms, like, and you, and you said this too, about what they know about us and what we know about them. And if there's some way to involve the user in this decision about what data to collect, what does the data mean? How much is it weighted? Like you said, you could, given certain goals, you could weight certain kinds of behaviors, either higher or lower. So, you know, if you know you, you have habits of using apps at certain times or something like that, and you don't want to do that, you could, you know, weight them lower, you know, weight the time on site lower, the dwell time, reduce the, 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 um, the weighting of this factor. And there, it's, you know, it's not difficult to do, but there's no incentive really for the companies to do it. It's a nice academic idea, but I do wonder uh, without something like the GDPR, that's why I think the GDPR is so key because you have the power of law behind it. It's not just, and, and right now there's so many AI ethics principles and frameworks and guidelines that it's, it's confusing actually. And no one really knows what to do or, you know, who, whom do we trust? Which, which principles are we using? But at the end of the day, the law is backed by the power of the state. So, you know, if you want to pick one, my suggestion is pick, pick the GDPR's principles and go with that as your recommender system design principles, because they're based on human rights. You know, those are time tested. It's backed by the power to levy fines. And, and, you know, in, in reality, the fines have not been so common. And they're usually just for really egregious violations, but it's nothing like the way you designed a recommender system or something like that. But I think just knowing that there's potentially consequences for violating these things might actually get designers, data scientists, engineers, data engineers to rethink the way they approach the, the system. Yeah. yeah, and in Foucault, there's this idea of the panopticon, which... Um originally goes back to Jeremy Bentham, but it has become more and more relevant, I guess, uh, from the modern perspective of of these kind of data collecting platforms. And Foucault talks about these invisible expressions of power that can have like, really strongly shaped the dynamics of a society without being like, really fully visible in the form of weapons or legislation or the police, for example, but these companies having invisible power over our behavior in a way and governments as well and that really in this this kind of framework of statistical theory that is at the backbone of data science and of recommender systems you you start to talk about like really theoretical populations and the individual in a sense um gets diluted in this idea of the theoretical population and the individual is not really at the center anymore and Kind of to counterbalance that, um, like taking away of, of the individual rights of the individuals, you really need to, to have these laws and legislations to, to, to really fight back in a way against these kind of individual tendencies of that power. And that's, that's the part, again, where I think marketing and the language use affects us. And, and I, this is also a Foucauldian point that the words that we use sort of shape how we perceive things. And when you call something like personalization, this has been something that I don't, I feel like more people should 
care about this, but no one seems to care. But, you know, it's based on the word person. And it, it doesn't seem to me that any of the principles guiding the design of these personalized recommendations have anything to do with what we what we think of when we think of a person, either a legal person or uh, from a moral perspective or anything like that. They use the word over and over, personalization, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, really, it's just, you know, these, um, if I show you a, a red button and a blue button and 1%, you have a 1% more higher chance of clicking on the red one. And I scale that for, you know, 10 million people, then I can get, you know, however much more conversions or something like that. And it's, it's, I guess it's good marketing to call it personalization because it makes people feel like, oh, this, this system understands me. It treats me as a person, but in reality, the kind of data they're collecting has really nothing to do with what you would consider as important or what, what makes you unique as a person. And that's why I think the narrative is, is important because I think the narratives touch on what people feel makes them special as persons. And if you can somehow tap into that, then maybe recommender systems can be used for, for actually improving yourself and improving society. And, you know, some people would say maybe filter bubbles would be, would, would be more likely, you know, if people can just make up whatever narrative you can interpret any behavior, any way you want, then how, you know, what standards do we use? You know, what, what kind of narrative do we, listen to any narrative is, is everyone equally valid and i think that's where the dialogue part comes in with the the data collection platform and it's this mutual understanding that can occur potentially when the user actually has to talk to the designer and the designer actually has to talk to the user and instead of having a one one-sided conversation it's a it's a dialogue and so it's like oh you you wanted to do this yes i did oh okay then we'll we'll you know, wait this higher in the future. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, are you sure? Okay, we'll, we'll get rid of this. Or, you know, we'll take back, like imagine some kind of undo button on recommendations or something like that. Um, that would be nice maybe, right? But uh, until users have more interaction, if they're, I guess they call it participatory design, until that happens, I don't, it, it will just continue to be a, a one-sided conversation, unfortunately. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems to be something that's absolutely obvious for us when we, like in our everyday life, just if we have personal contact with people and they provide a service and we don't like that service, we can just say, yeah, please don't do that again. But with this technology, it's really this just talking to a wall or not even having any way to, to interact and talk. That seems to be something very unnatural. And, and that's the thing, like there, we, these, the data collection, it actually does have potential to alert us about certain habitual behaviors that we have that we maybe don't want to have. But until we're confronted with that, those facts, those data of how we're using certain services, you know, like maybe I'm watching too much YouTube and I have, you know, work that I need to do, but for whatever reason, I'm, basically a, a, a zombie when I'm using YouTube. It's all non-conscious, just habit at this point. I'm just, you know, as soon as I grab my computer, I click on Chrome and it pops up YouTube or whatever. And I'm not really thinking about what I'm doing. And in my opinion, a lot of the predictive signal that recommender systems use, if, you know, if they're, they're accurate at all, it's just that much of what we do is non-conscious goal-directed behavior. 
and we're, we're just unaware of that. And so I guess from a philosophical point of view, if we can use technology to sort of tap into our capacity to reflect on ourselves and our own values and our own habits and behaviors, uh, I think then the, the technology has potential for, for good and for uh, contributing to, to human flourishing. But until that happens, then it's, it's not clear that that's what's happening. Yeah, and at one point you also compared um, recommender systems or the current state of recommender systems to religion. Can you linger on that point a bit or elaborate why you, you made that comparison and like, why you think it makes sense? Yeah, so if you think of recommender systems, if you think of, I don't know if you're familiar with Luciano Floridi's work, but he's, um, he's an Italian professor at Oxford and I think it's the Digital Ethics Institute and he's written all kinds of stuff. He has so many publications about information and, and he's getting into uh, data ethics and things like that. And he, he calls this thing on life where it's not online. It's not, um, it's, it's not clear anymore where the divide is between digital and analog reality. And if you look at a recommender system as like a, a cognitive device, like an extended cognition device that allows us to navigate an extremely complex digital environment or an extremely complex informational environment, then, I mean, the goal of that device is to then reduce the, the cognitive burden of, of navigating and making decisions in that complex environment. And I think the connection with religion for me was just that it sort of works similarly if you if you have a if you have religious beliefs then it simplifies things for you it, it's not a digital environment it's a the real real environment but essentially having these it's a kind of cognitive aid in a way that allows you to make very simplified uh, decisions based on simplifications of of complex environments and I, I don't know i think it's an interesting way of looking at recommender systems if you go if you want to go down that postmodern path of data shadows assemblages and post-human stuff and i think there are some philosophers now who are talking about uh, digital hermeneutics and all these things uh, i think that's maybe one interesting area to look at is like the recommender system as a cognitive device um, Sorry, what was the term hermeneutics? Um, yeah, hermeneutics. Oh, no, the, the, the term you just used in D combination digital, with something else. Digital hermeneutics. Yeah, can you can you explain what that means? <laughs> well, as I understand it, uh, hermeneutics is really just the sort of philosophy of Heidegger and Ricoeur and some and Gadamer, and they're they sort of readapted earlier approaches to interpreting religious texts. So like Hermes was the, the messenger God, right? So hermeneutics is where the, that's where the word comes from. And the, the, I think the, the interesting thing that you can take from philosophy or from hermeneutical philosophy and apply to data science is the idea that behavior is text. And once, once you make that leap, once you sort of metaphorically see behavior as text, you know, then you can apply all kinds of interpretive ideas to understanding texts, right? You can try to ask the question of what was the, the author's intent in this text? But of course, the text is, is a behavior. It's recorded behavior. It's log behavior. 
And so um, this, this is again where the dialogue comes in. And I think some, some people, I think mostly in France, is definitely not an American thing as far as I know, uh, people who are interested in this. I think probably because it's based on continental philosophy. But I think this might be an emerging area in philosophy where people are trying to apply these hermeneutical ideas to data collection and um, data science and recommender systems and things like that. Yeah, it, it also ties in with this idea from Derrida, for example, with there being nothing outside the text and really the, the text being the central, yeah, the, the, the central thing to analyze and there being only the text and in the text this, this containing basically all of the perspectives. And that's like something in the continental philosophical tradition. Yeah, I think when I, I mean, I'm not, a, I don't know that much about Derrida, but you can tell, I, I pick up at least two big influences, one from cybernetics. So I guess information theory and the other being um, like formalist mathematics, like um, from David Hilbert. And you can tell like through structuralism that Derrida is really, he's asking questions about structures like that, you know, something only has a meaning within this, this background context of a, of a given structure. And once you take that thing from that, that structure, um, you can essentially create new meanings, right? You, you can detach a, a sign from its, what's signified by that sign. And once you do that, you, you gain all kinds of creativity um, because you can, like you said, it's, you can, in, in the, in a, different background context, you can generate all kinds of new meaning and experience. So I think there's some people in information systems that are drawing on these sort of postmodern approaches about data collection. And uh, there's stuff from, who was it, from Deleuze about individuals and sort of how digital technology has changed this. It's created a new kind of entity these digital entities that have split, which was uh, that which was seen as one whole, right? an individual, meaning you can't split it up and then you, you split it up and you, the uh, downside is that now all these things like rights of individuals no longer, it's not clear how they apply anymore. But on the other hand, you gain all kinds of creative things that you can do, right? And, and that's kind of where like marketing is, is going, they create, you know, segmentations of, of groups and they can do all kinds of crazy aggregations and, um, you know, dimensionality reduction and come up with, with things that don't correspond to anything in the world. And yeah, the question is like, what exactly is happening there and how does that relate to real people in the real world that have rights uh, to, you know, modify, collect their data and stuff like that. And I think that's one of the issues that, Zuboff raises in her book this shadow industry where it's not only the people who are using your data and analyzing it and making predictions on that particular platform, but what's happening is that a lot of these predictions then get sold to third parties or the data themselves get sold to third parties. And even if that original platform were to give you your data, that's just from the platform. And now it's already been sent to third party data brokers or whoever else. Yeah, and the 
there's so many places you can you can end up online and so many kind of new identities to create I mean, we, we saw that already with the sims <laughs> to a certain degree that that desire in human beings to to kind of reinvent themselves and to to create these new identities online i think that like moving forward with the advance of virtual reality and this kind of this penetration of of online uh, normal life everyday life earthly existence with with this kind of internet um virtual existence i think it's only get, going to get more intense and it's really yeah really might redefine what an individual even means if you if you live in five different places and have five different virtual representations online then what does it even mean to have personal rights like what does it come to so i think that also ties in with a lot of these transhumanist visions of how we're going to end up in the next century to come and i think that's pretty i mean it's extremely relevant to think about that because it's going to happen either way and considering we we've observed like our institutions and jurisdiction and kind of our mentality always lagging behind at least 10 20 years when it comes to these kind of innovations is really important to to keep keep track of what's going to happen yeah it's it's so hard with regulation like to predict what's going to happen right and then there's always business trade-offs where you know if you make the wrong bet about how big data is going to be used or you know how machine learning is going to develop then you you risk creating irrelevant you know pointless laws that that don't have any effect anyway um, or you drive business elsewhere to other countries or something like that i think like you to go back to what you said about virtual reality i think yeah the big question is if if that's going to happen if it's inevitable then shouldn't we have some say in how that happens and instead of letting things you know it's easy to just be passive and because technology will make the decision for us corporations in silicon valley will essentially make this decisions for us and so unless you put your you know draw a line in the sand and say look we're going to have a discussion about this and and if if it's the case that we have five different digital identities and these are important because it decides what prices i'm offered online it decides what job opportunities i have uh, you know who my date, all these things, if these, these, these are actual morally important implications here, then the, the people who are affected by this should have some role to play in, in how that turns out. Yeah, talking about Facebook today, I think uh, I read about it today, announced a dating function as well. So it's really trying to take over. <laughs> I, I heard, you know, I heard about that like a year ago, but I never saw it. Are they, so now they're finally doing it or? I think now they are finally doing it, but I also read there was some backlash. I don't know what the, what the state of like what's, what's going on like precisely at the moment, but I think they are trying to push it, but it's a bit tricky because like people on Facebook didn't like officially sign up for a dating app, obviously. And there's a lot of like kind of private data. So I don't know how that would, would work out, but I mean, it's just an illustration of like these social networks really then also. And I mean, if you date on Facebook, then the recommendations of who you get suggested as a potential dating partner are obviously based on big data and behavioral big data and your interests. 
So then who you're going to marry and end up spending your life with is going to be determined by these black box algorithms. That's definitely something to, to consider. Yeah, and it's all incentivized by advertisements and and so the whole incentive structure is it's like you know we can show you really relevant uh, quote unquote relevant ads to your you know given your behavior and your stated interests apparently um and then just sort of as an epiphenomenon you can also find a, a potential dating partner or something like that i mean it's uh yeah, I mean, to what extent do we want to have Facebook shape the social norms for dating? And this is the part that, to me, is kind of crazy that we let people... I mean, I, I don't think that engineers and data scientists should be... I think, of course, the, the more well-rounded you are, the more you've, um, you know spent time thinking in different areas of, of human knowledge, it's, it's good. But in some cases, I think, you know, it might be better to let people build stuff and then let other people with different skills um, design certain other things and maybe not try to uh, solve every problem at once with some technology. So how are you planning to, to continue with your research? Are there any topics you want to pursue? Like any project in your PhD that, that really interests you that you want to spend more time on? Um, I, I'm still trying to figure out where exactly, and you, pr you probably have the same issue when you're kind of doing interdisciplinary stuff, when you're kind of doing something like, you know, you're trying to bring some philosophical ideas to recommender system design. It's really hard to know how to, yeah, how to formulate it so that it's appropriate for that audience. You know, if, if you just bring in the language without any kind of translation to the community, they will be turned off by it. They won't really understand what you're saying. So I'm still trying to figure out exactly where this community is, is best for me. My advisor thinks that information systems is probably a, a good fit because they seem to come from many different backgrounds. Um, in terms of research projects, I'm still trying to develop this interpretation of the GDPR and apply it to um, recommender systems design. We have one idea that we're working with right now. We're trying to develop basically the, the thing we noticed is that in recommender systems and context-aware recommender systems, they... They cite this one guy from Human Computer Interaction who wrote a, a paper about what is context. And in that paper, the guy gives two different explanations for context. One he calls the phenomenological approach, which is like what we're saying based on hermeneutics and phenomenology and this continental tradition. And of course, part of that involves intentionality, conscious awareness of, of certain things and, and meaning. And then he, he talks about the positivist approach where you're just essentially treating it like information, like, um, you know, as if you can just abstract away from the conscious awareness of things and then um, represent, you know, time or place one-sidedly. And they call it context aware, but it's funny because they cite his paper, but actually in the paper, he says, this approach, the positivist approach is not the way to do it. We need to think about more phenomenological 
approaches where you take into account interactions and affordances and all these things. And so I think maybe we're, we're thinking about how we can introduce or sort of correct the interpretation of that paper in the information systems, in the context aware recommender systems uh, literature to sort of make sure people are clear about what we talk about when we talk about mm-hmm. context. Yeah, maybe to, to take a step back from like the details of the research, you've finished your first year, now you're in, in your second year of your PhD. Considering also you, you took a bit of a, like, not that not a really straightforward road to, to end up doing a PhD now. Like what has moving into academia and moving into, into research and actually doing research every day like taught you are there any big lessons you learned in the last one or two years anything you you would like to tell yourself if you if you could talk to yourself a couple of years ago about how it's like and what things you should yeah take into account it's a good question i yeah before i started the phd i never really participated much in conferences and I went to a few conferences. Uh, there's one Informs conference. It's sort of like a operations research conference, which was totally not my my field at all. And going to those conferences made me realize that okay, this is not what I want to do. This was more the really engineering focused, operations focused, data science type stuff about optimization. And a lot of the mathematics was was beyond me. Um, however, I, I did meet some some nice people, but it, it just made me realize that um, it's really important to find your specific community where you connect with people, you have similar ways of thinking, you can speak the same language, so to speak. And um, so I think going to conferences, doing lots of conference papers, getting your ideas out there and getting feedback on them is something that I'm getting used to or trying to get used to. You know, so just present as much as possible. And I think that's a good way to develop ideas, get feedback, um, <clears throat> and also potentially find collaborators uh, from the, the Recommender Systems Conference uh, I did recently. I met a couple people from the Netherlands that were interested in connections with GDPR. And so, I, of course, in Taiwan, I never would have met those people. So I think conferences, presentations as much as possible. And oh, the one thing I'll say is that I never realized how much of of like journal submissions, I never realized how much of that was like, like strategy. I thought you just write a paper, and then you submit it to some journal. And like, if you're lucky, they accept it. But I didn't know that it's like, oh, because this person knows this person, and they can like, you know, send it to a reviewer who knows this and they'll do it faster. And I never realized that so much of it is kind of based on uh, social conventions and social norms and the connections that, that people have really can help you sort of grease the wheels. I think sometimes we have this idealized notion of how science operates, but it's human beings are involved and other things tend to be really important when it comes to that. And it's really tricky to, to remain in that idealized realm of having this objective, looking at the objective quality of the science. 
But I think what, what you just mentioned about conferences and getting your ideas out there is absolutely crucial, especially in times of, of COVID where conferences have come to a halt and it's really in the office, like a lot of people are in home office working for themselves in front of their computer and it's it's much more difficult to reach out and easily just casually connect to people that you have never met. And it's I think it's harder to, to really go out and schedule a call like a cold Zoom call with a with a stranger than just running into each other at a conference and drinking a beer in the evening. But I think for, for the advancement of, of science, it's so crucial because two people usually have better ideas than one person each just sitting in front of their computer all day. And, and it's also a good way to sort of do interdisciplinary work as well, because if you're, you know, you can, there's so many interesting conferences. There's, there's just so many different ones. And if you're trying to break into some new field, like if you have some idea for blah, 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 um, you can try to submit it to a workshop or something like that and get feedback. And maybe you can get to know some, some people who work in that field. And if you're lucky, maybe they'll collaborate with you and you can sort of like slowly, I mean, I'm not saying I'm trying to change my, my area, but if, if you, if someone wanted to, you could maybe, you know, start that way, getting to make connections with people like, like for some of what I'm doing, it's involved in law. So right now we're just, we met with a, a law professor and talking about how AI is used for uh, judicial decision-making. And I think in the future, it will be good to, to know him and to work together with him. Like if we want to have one section of a paper that's talking about the legal implications of something, then we can go back to him and say, hey, do you, do you want to uh, collaborate with us yeah that really sometimes like life takes these trajectories that are impossible to plan out in advance and sometimes it's really this person you run into randomly that's going to shape your entire academic year and where you end up living and it's pretty crucial to realize that it's really seldom takes these like obvious roads and these pre-planned road, especially in academia, where like the time horizon of three years is, I think, the absolute limit of what you can put, possibly <laughs> imagine your future being, maybe like only two years or something. I don't know how your PhD program works, but in ours, it's maybe different because you don't you don't write a dissertation, but typically what people do is they they take like three journal articles that they published. And then they sort of put package the three articles together in one sort of piece. So you can you can kind of like mix and match a little bit. You don't have to just focus on one thing, you know. Yeah, it's there's different ways of doing it, but it's we have kind of kind of the option of either doing having several publications and just yeah handing them in together or having one larger dissertation. But in our field it's definitely also about having publications and it's kind of the, the most crucial thing. Like in the end, maybe you, you spent two months just writing everything together that you that you did, but like the, the the dissertation that you hand in in the end is really not what it's about. It's it's really about the the publications and journal articles. Yeah, and the from to go back to, to data again, the, the thing that I kind of worry about too and this, this is something that uh, I've worked with 
uh, with a colleague and my advisor is this empirical study about how researchers use personal data in, in their own academic research from different disciplines, because <clears throat> we know that traditionally people from computer science, from engineering backgrounds, they don't have to take these required human subjects research, uh, you know, ethics uh, credentials. So like if you're doing any kind of social science, you'll have to get IRB approval if there's any kind of uh, human interaction, manipulation, anything like that. And so we, we recently did a, a, a survey with like a bunch of Taiwanese academics to try to figure out if there was any difference in disciplines about what, what they understood about human subjects, research ethics, what they knew about the GDPR and so on. But what I've noticed is that a lot of the data used in a lot of publications is coming from China. And I think this is like an interesting ethical issue with academic publishing. It's like, if you want an interesting data set, really all you have to do is find someone from China that has business connections or government connections, and you just add that person on the paper. And I don't, I don't know if they need to do anything, but you have now an interesting data set and you can get published in a top journal because you know, part of the criteria is that you have a novel data set. And um, it seems kind of almost unfair in a way because it sort of promotes this unethical approach to data by any means. And there's, you know, they don't need to make that. Well, more, more of these top journals luckily are, are asking for data provenance. So they're asking, you know, how did you get the data? And did you go through IRB if there's any kind of human subjects aspect to it? So I think that's maybe a good thing, but I, I mean, I'm sure it depends on your field in, in neuroscience, you probably don't have this issue, but in social science, it seems like it's becoming bigger. And in medical science, it's also something I've heard about, especially because um, with genetics, for example, with the genomes in China, there's this big programs of pretty much getting the genome of every person in, in China. I'm not sure if, if that's actually like underway. But in principle, it would be extremely helpful for the whole field of, of big data genomics to, to have like 1.2 billion samples and connect them to also a history of, of health, of mental health, of physical health, cancer. You could probably determine just by deep learning methods so many risk factors. And that would be tremendously helpful just for science. But it's, I mean, it's obvious that the ethical implications of that are extremely tricky. Like if you could determine, for example, that a certain person has a risk factor for cancer at that certain age, and then if that health of the health insurance of that person gets wind of that and they throw that person out without them even knowing why, I mean, there's so many really shed, shady areas where I'm really happy that in Europe, for example, something like that is not going to happen. But at the same time, if you're a scientist in that field and that data exists, what are you going to do? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good point. And the interesting thing when you look at sort of international law perspective is how these different countries balance those, those needs for scientific inquiry and knowledge with the sort of societal ethical implications. And it seems to me that, you know, China has chosen to go maybe more in the economic scientific uh, route, whereas Europe has preferred to take a more conservative approach and focus more on data protection. And maybe, you know, maybe it does hurt 
um, genetic research. You know, if you can't link people's behaviors with their genome, with the health outcomes, you know, if you could do that, like you said, it would be, I'm sure you could identify some interesting things there, but um, is it really worth <laughs> what could happen? Mm. Yeah, that's like science, science tends to have more tricky ethical implications than you might assume if you, if you just move into a very technical field where you, you really think that uh, science is objective and science is you just have your data and just think about it and run your programs. It doesn't tend to be that easy. Yeah, maybe before we wrap this up, um, you, you also write these articles on Medium and are also like, interested in, in communicating your ideas. So first of all, I just want to um, encourage people listening to this podcast if they are still listening to to check out your articles on medium under travis green um which go into much more detail and also link a lot of the books you've been reading and, and thinking about in your papers and all of that so i can highly recommend them and just as a like a general question like what m motivates you to write these articles and like... i think i started a blog like Uh, when I was trying to get into data science, like a couple of years ago, I was, I was like, okay, I want to learn how to make a website. Okay. Um, and then, you know, I want to post up some, some data analysis stuff, just not, not because it's good or because people should know about it, but just as a, you know, way to, I guess, make a portfolio for myself and just document my own learning. And um, at some point I realized that yeah, no one, no one reads the blog. Uh, unless it's one of these platforms. So then I think my advisor suggested making a Medium account. And, and Medium makes it really easy too because you can link blog posts that you wrote on your own website directly into Medium. So, you know, if you want to re reuse some content that you wrote or some code or something that you wrote for some blog post, you can almost copy, it, copy and paste it directly into Medium and it will have a decent uh, code formatting. But... Yeah, the way I use Medium is, I think you said the same thing, just like to sort of sketch out ideas for things, to practice putting things in a way that's appropriate to a general audience. I, I don't really know what the, the average Medium reader is like, but it seems to me that if you make an article longer than about, I don't know, 10 or 12 minutes, Uh, reading time, not many people will, will want to read it. So it's kind of skewed towards shorter digestible articles. But I think, um, yeah, I think maybe 10 minutes is, a, is about the sweet spot. So for me, it's, it's good practice to experiment, uh, like you said, with books that I'm currently reading or some idea that I had, and I just want to get it on, on paper, so to speak. And then also another thing that like a tip is that you can use it to communicate with your advisor. So instead of having face-to-face -face meetings and where it might take you an hour to explain some idea in a clear way, you can write a blog post and then share it with your advisor and your advisor can read the whole blog post and have like a basic understanding. And then when you meet in person, you're like, Oh yeah, I remember this and that. And so it facilitates discussion with people. I think that's one nice little benefit I've noticed. Yeah. Definitely. And yeah, the, that whole structuring of, of your own ideas is 
something I find also find extremely helpful from writing short articles. Like first of all, to make it like to in order to make ideas clear to other people, you have to uh, to make them clear for yourself. It's really helpful to make them clear to other people because then you have to understand them and have to verbalize them and. Also, from that narrative perspective we talked about earlier, it's like really if you if you manage to shape an idea into a narrative, it it becomes really much more powerful and much more palpable. And I think yeah, the, the ideas you're looking into and thinking about are extremely important to for many people to think about and for our societies to to really address, and for the big tech companies and governments to really address because they are going to to shape. How human beings are going to develop in the long run and going to behave in the short run so um i think that's maybe a good point to wrap this whole whole thing up thanks a lot for being on the podcast i really really enjoyed our conversation and i'm really curious to to continue reading from you and continue hearing from you and yeah. thanks for being on the podcast thanks manuel appreciate it enjoyed talking with you too